Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 98, All the Nations. Today you're going to hear part one of my interview with Steve Jeffrey. Uh, we're going to be talking about post-millennialism. But before we do, uh, I wanted to do something a little bit different in my monologue, something that uh, just struck me this morning. I want to give a little bit of an unsolicited pitch for a device that's uh, changed my reading life really drastically. Uh, and, it, and, and it was a change that I hadn't expected. Uh, and, that, and the device that I'm talking about, perhaps this is not a surprise to many of you, is, is the Kindle. Uh, up until a couple of months ago, I did some reading here and there, uh, mostly for preparing things, uh, preparing for things like debates and podcast episodes and stuff like that. But I didn't do a lot of reading of books from cover to cover. Um, and a friend of mine asked me, uh, he wanted to give me the Kindle as a gift. And of course, I was willing to accept it, but I warned him that I didn't suspect that it would uh, that I would be using it all that much um, you know when I'm uh, I, I do have some I did have some Kindle books even before I got the Kindle I bought them uh, and read them uh, on the Kindle for PC application uh, so that I could copy and paste quotes from books to use in, in uh, uh, you know blog posts and debates and so forth um, and so I told him that it, I you know at the time I was only reading on my computer if it was anything that I needed to copy and paste from and and you know most other times, if I was reading, it was uh, on a book, and, and, and that was uh, a physical book, and that was not something that I did very often. So I told him, you know, I'm, I'm happy to take the Kindle, but just be aware that uh, it's not likely that I'm going to be using it much. Well, he went ahead and he got it for me, assuring me that that probably would not turn out to be the case, and <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly true. It didn't turn out to be the case. It's actually really transformed um, uh, my reading life. I've read a ton of books already um, since I got it, particularly because it allows me to listen to them while I'm on the road uh, or, you know, whatever. You know, I, In other words, I, while I'm busy and can't actually physically read it, I can listen to it. So I'm just looking here at some of the books that I've got on my Kindle that I've been reading or have finished reading, have read cover to cover or partway through. Um, I just recently read Jeff Cook. Uh, he's a philosopher and he wrote a book called Everything New, One Philosopher's Search for a God Worth Believing in, and that book was very good. Uh, I've got a book on here that I'll be reviewing on my blog and, and interviewing the author of called Convert from Adam to Christ. Uh, I've read two views on, on women in ministry. Um, it, it's part of the Counterpoint series, and it has egalitarian presentations with, uh, you know, complementarian presentations. Francis Chan's Forgotten God, um, uh, Francis Chan's Crazy Love, Matt Chandler's The Explicit Gospel, uh, the uh, let's see here, Postmillennialism Made Easy by Kenneth Gentry, which is kind of appropriate given the interview that you're about to listen to. Um, and then I've got other books in the theology area for uh, for reference purposes. I've also got fiction books that I've read. Um, I read The Princess Bride recently, which was pretty cool. And I read Fight Club, a book that perhaps might be darker than some of you might think Christians should be reading. But, uh, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, several books on the topic of hell uh, because of my contributions to RethinkingHell.com. Uh, you know, I've, I've recently read Edward Fudge's Hell, A Final Word, uh, Francis Chan's Erasing Hell, uh, the Four Views on Hell Counterparts book, um, to which Clark Pinnock contributed the conditionalist view of hell. 
Uh, Two Views of Hell, which is the debate between Robert Peterson and Edward Fudge. Uh, anyway, and, and many others. I've got a bunch of books, and then on top... Oh, I've also got um, uh, Every Man's Marriage. Um, I think that we as men, um, it, it, it's always a lesson that we can learn how to be better husbands. And right now, what I'm actually reading is uh, another book by Michael Brown called A Queer Thing Happened to America. Uh, boy, I tell you, this book is like reading from a fire hose, drinking from a fire hose, <laughs> and it's a, and it's a, the fire hose has a supply of water that doesn't seem to end. I mean, it, uh, every time he says, you know, I could go on, he does go on, and, and it's just really, uh, eye-opening. Let's just put it that way. And, and I've reached out to the director for Dr. Brown asking him if, if he might be interested in coming on my show, uh, to do an interview on the topic. Ho- hopefully, hopefully that pans out. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a great device. You know, I, I didn't think that, um, I, I didn't know how it would impact the actual physical act of reading, but it's actually much easier to read than on a uh, on a device with a backlit screen like a laptop or, or a phone. Um, it's got incredible battery life. Uh, it's easier on the eyes. You don't have a refreshing screen. It uses e-ink, and, and so it's uh, static on the screen. It, it's not as painful to the eyes. And uh, and I got this case with it that uh, has a uh, extendable light that uh, shines on the screen if I'm in darkness or whatever. I mean, I, just, I could just go on and on and on. And perhaps um, uh, perhaps I shouldn't be using the monologue of my podcast to pitch a device. But, but I really do encourage those of you who... Um, uh, you can, can afford to pay the 150 bucks, whatever it costs for a Kindle to, to get yourself one. If you're, if you're not, if you like to read, but don't do a lot of reading, I guarantee you that if you were to pick one of these up, it's going to really transform your reading life, uh, as it has mine. Um, and, uh, oh, and one thing that's kind of cool is I, I like, I enjoy tweeting, uh, and posting on Facebook from the device, uh, when I finish reading a book. It, it has a built-in 3G, uh, 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 wireless receiver, and it connects to an Amazon WhisperNet of some sorts that uh, that allows me to tweet and post. I can sh- I can shop books online on the on the on the uh, on the Kindle all for free. So um, anyway, yeah, please consider getting a Kindle. It, it really is amazing. Um, and uh, I guess I'll just stop with that and move into today's promo. Uh, and the next promo in the rotation is for Matt Slick's Calm Radio. There is a God. You are not him. Welcome to Faith and Reason, the apologetics, Christian-based apologetics show, where we answer difficult questions about Christianity. We expose the errors of such things as atheism, Roman Catholicism, evolution, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian science, New Age, Islam, and various other religious and secular systems. Why? Because Jesus alone is the way to truth and life, and if you don't receive him as your Savior, you're lost and you're in trouble on the Day of Judgment. I need to update that uh, promo because he still refers to the name of his show as the Faith and Reason uh, radio show, but that's not what it's called anymore for legal reasons. He had to change it to just Calm Radio. Uh, but in any case, you can listen to Calm Radio live with Matt Slick Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time on KSPD in Boise, Idaho on AM 790. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast uh, at CARM.org. That's C-A-R-M.org. It stands for Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. Uh, and I've got some links in the show notes so that you can get to it easily. Matt and I don't agree on everything. In fact, it seems like we're in 
we're disagreeing on increasingly more things. But I, I enjoy his show, uh, and he's been friendly to me when I've called in. And he's actually, I've even heard him uh, say some very complimentary things about me, even after we've got off the phone uh, in disagreement. Um, so I, I really I appreciate that, and I would encourage you to check out his show. Just be aware that you might find him a little bit, uh, gosh, what is the word that he uses to describe himself? Oh, obstreperous. That's right. He calls himself obstreperous, which uh, is defined by uh, it's defined as noisy, clamorous, or boisterous. Uh, so yeah, you, you might find his show a little offensive at times. I don't know, but I really enjoy it. So check it out. And uh, with that, we'll go ahead and we'll move right into the first part of my interview with Steve Jeffrey on postmillennialism. My guest today is Steve Jeffrey, pastor of Emmanuel Evangelical Church in Southgate, London. He's a co-author of Pierced for Our Transgressions, a book defending the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, as well as The Cross, a book introducing the message of the cross. He joined me in March on the Unbelievable Radio program with Justin Brierley to discuss the nature of final punishment, but today he joins me to advocate a different eschatological position, that of post-millennialism. Thanks for joining me today, Steve. It's great to be with you, Chris, and it's great to... Uh Though I won't hear them, I hope it's nice to be uh, in contact in one way or another with your listeners. <laughs> I'm sure they feel the same way. Now, I'd like to begin by getting to know a little bit about you, if sure. you don't mind. C sure. Could you tell us a bit about your background, your upbringing, how it is that you would identify yourself theologically today, and also about uh, Emmanuel Evangelical Church, where you currently minister? Um, sure. Okay. I was brought up in a uh, Christian family. Uh, I was taken to uh, church by my uh, mum and my stepdad. Um, it was... Uh, I guess a middle-of-the-road Church of England church. Uh, it wouldn't have described itself as evangelical. Uh, and it was later at university where I encountered um, evangelical teaching, Bible teaching, and evangelical Christians for the first time. And that was, I have to say, that was a bit of a shock because here I was meeting people who just understood their faith in a way that I didn't. And more importantly, I guess, they were really living it out. And for a year or so, the battle raged within me and to a certain extent around me um, between the kind of ungodly lifestyle that I was drawn towards and the teaching of scripture which was and the presence of Christ in his church which was drawing me towards him and eventually Jesus won as he has a habit of doing and <laughs> and um, and yeah so I, I guess at that point my my understanding of the gospel got clearer and my my desire to live for Christ became more um, more full-blooded more more clear-headed and so during my time at university, I, I grew as a Christian. I met Nicole, who I married, my wife, and, and we have three kids now. Um, on leaving university, I should say, so my wife left university before I did. I stayed and did postgrad study, and we got married during that time. And then after that, I'd been encouraged by a couple of friends to think about full-time Christian ministry, which... Mm. Well, that scared me. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I was still young enough and foolish enough to think it was um, a good idea. And and um, uh, and so I took a job for a couple of years. Actually, it turned out to be three years at a, a church in South London, where uh, which is now part of the, the Co-Mission Initiative. It's a, a network of churches which is growing and spreading across South London and Central London as well. Um, and I worked there for two for three years. I did a course called the Cornhill Training Course, and during that time, I was encouraged by the elders of the church to train full time as a minister. 
which I did. I, so I went to a theological college in 2003, uh, did a master's in theology, uh, and then I, I came out in 2007. Uh, and after a, a year and a half as an assistant minister of a church, I took a post as the, the I guess, the founding minister of Emmanuel Evangelical Church in Southgate, which is in North London. Mm. Uh, and this is just a small church plant. We began with uh, 30 people, uh, 32 people, including children. And half of us were under the age of 18. And of those guys, just through the normal rough and tumble of church life and people moving away, I think about half of them are left. But praise God, we are growing. Um, and we have new people joining us almost every week at the moment. And um, uh, so now we number some 55 or 60 people. And we meet in a, a secondary school in Southgate and... Uh, yeah, we praise God. We're still here three and a half years later. Um, and, yeah, so we're a, uh, an evangelical, uh, reformed church. Uh, we, uh, by, again, by God's grace, we, we've come to represent demographically and ethnically the mix of people in our local community, which is wonderful. We have, yeah. you know, several different nationalities around, just as in the local area. Um, London is that kind of multicultural city. And it's... Uh, Every every couple of days, I sort of have to pinch myself. You know, do I do I, <laughs> do I really get to do this job and, and this council's work? You know, it's such a privilege to be here, and the congregation is uh, loving and welcoming, and they they love the Bible and they love Jesus. So one comment from a visitor, actually, this is going back a couple of years. We um, a lady had joined the church, and one of her relatives from elsewhere came along, and and this lady was after the service was scrutinising our service sheet, our church bulletin, very closely. And I went over to her and said, uh, hi, I'm not sure we've met. And she introduced herself. And then she paused and she said, there's a lot of Bible in this service sheet. <laughs> and I just thought, phew, you know, that's, <laughs> that's how it's supposed to be. And so um, right. God has been very kind to us. And um, uh, yeah, that's where we are. Um, I, I should say, I mentioned I'm married. We have three children, uh, Ben, Becky and Abby, uh, who are between the ages of eight and five and occupy uh, a good deal of my energy and an awful lot of my wife's energy um, when we're not doing other things, um, and that's me. I can imagine. Yeah, I've got three three children myself, and, and I would certainly say the same <laughs> you know, thing. All about. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you're here to tell me uh, and my listeners about a view called postmillennialism. Okay. Uh, many of my listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with it, but many may not be, uh, as well as with the competing views that we're going to be discussing today. So, for those that aren't familiar with it, um, I'd like to begin by summarizing the three. You know, broader views within this debate. Uh, what is postmillennialism, and and what distinguishes it from uh, its its competitors, premillennialism and amillennialism? Okay. Well, let me first say that the name isn't going to help you much. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> to um, summarise postmillennialism in a nutshell, uh, postmillennialism post teaches that before Jesus returns in glory at the last judgment, uh, the vast majority of the world will be converted and will be following him. Uh, that will then have impact, of course, upon nations and the wider structures of society. But the defining feature of post-millennialism is that before Jesus comes back, um, his, uh, his church will have spread to fill the earth. There will still be unbelievers around, but not many. Um, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, as somebody once said. Um, now, to distinguish that from the other... Uh, views, both premillennialism and amillennialism uh, assert that before Jesus returns, uh, the church won't have grown in that way. Mm. So in other words, it's about what's going to be happening during this period of history. Um, is the church gradually going to grow 
before Resurrection Day? Or is it going to remain kind of as it is now in, ma- in many parts of the world a persecuted minority? Although actually, if you just think about history, perhaps we'll talk about this later, it has been growing, the church has been growing immensely. Um, and that's the, the key difference though. Uh, what's the church going to look like the moment before Jesus comes back? Now between pre-millennialism and amillennialism, there are some other differences, which I guess are for another day. Um, but just, just, <laughs> just a, a brief comment on the name. The millennium... Uh, as in pre-millennial, post-millennial, um, is the uh, the long period of time uh, during which Satan is held in captive, as in Revelation chapter 20, the thousand years. Um, and although sometimes lots of discussion focuses around that passage, that passage isn't really the key passage at all for post-millennialism. But the millennialism right. isn't a literal thousand years, uh, in my view. Some people think it is, but, but I don't believe it is. Um, it's just a long period of time during which Satan is bound. And so does Jesus return pre that time, before that time, as in pre-millennialism? Does he return after that time, post-millennialism? And uh, I believe that that period of time is the time we're now living in, and Jesus will return at the end of that long period of history where Satan is held captive, the church therefore is growing, and when he returns, all his saints, which will be the vast majority of the world, will be ready to welcome him. Okay, that's good. Okay, well, with those with those summaries out of the way, let's let's dive right into your case for postmillennialism. Uh, and in, in some of the, the papers that you sent me, you present what you call your central argument, which begins with the idea that God's intention was that humanity should rule the creation, should rule the earth. Can you tell us about that and what you call the cultural or creation mandate? Sure, sure. Well, it's always a good thing to start with the Bible, um, and particularly with the first few chapters of the Bible. The, um, the account of the creation of the world sets the agenda for a very great deal of the Bible. And if you look at what God said to uh, Adam and Eve on day six, I'll just remind you of what it says. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Mm. That's uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. That is the so-called cultural mandate or creation mandate. It's the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve to build culture or that he gave them at the time of creation. That that term is by no means unique to me or to post-millennialists. Generally, it's a widespread terminology in the Reformed tradition. Your listeners will have heard that, I'm sure. And the uh, point that uh, it seems to me is quite important to make from this is that what God told Adam and Eve to accomplish... God will accomplish. Mm. What God made man for, what God made man and woman for, will be accomplished. God made man to rule, and man will rule. God made man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and man and woman will do that. Uh, It's indicative of a gradual process of spreading out across the world to uh, display God's glory by ruling the world in accordance with his word. And uh, it seems to me, therefore, that there's no reason to doubt that this will happen. Mm. Now, of course, what happens in Genesis chapter 3 
is that sin intervenes. But the intervention of sin cannot be thought to undo God's purposes. Of course it places a barrier in the way, but it's a barrier that will be overcome. Much of the Bible, of course, is focused on overcoming that barrier, though not all of it. Um, a lot of the Bible is actually focused on the maturing of the human race and the fruitfulness of human living. Think of um, the book of Proverbs, for example. Um, uh, but that said, a lot of the Bible is focused with dealing with the problem of sin that comes in in chapter 3 and the problem of evil and uh, hostility from the devil in chapter 3. But all those problems aren't going to stand in the way of the living God. What the Lord made man to accomplish, he will accomplish. And moreover, he will do so in this period of history which he's created with the first creation. Of course there will be a resurrection, and we might speculate that if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, they would have been raised or resurrected to a kind of the different kind of life that Jesus now enjoys. But there's no reason to doubt that God will accomplish this dominion, this conquest, through his people, having redeemed them from sin uh, in the period of history that we're now living in. And so uh, if we let Genesis 1 set the agenda, we are left with an expectation that gradually the people of God will fill the earth, will subdue the earth, will be blessed by God, and will have dominion over all the things that God has made. And that is the vision of post-millennial eschatology. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure that uh, some of my listeners are probably already, you know, probably have some objections sitting around in their mind. And we're oh, no, no, no. They're, little... they're, they're all on side already, Chris. They all <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, well, well, we'll come back to what objections they might have in a, in a, a little bit later in the interview. But but it, it's at this point in your in okay. your argument and the papers that you sent me that, that you move on from, from this what you've just described, to discuss how, how, the, how God's plan to fulfill this purpose was unveiled through Abraham, right, making right. a point to argue that the language of Genesis 22:18 implies that nations as nations, not merely people from every nation, as, as people like myself, who is not yet a convinced post-millennialist, might say, that, that nations as nations will be blessed by Abraham's yeah, God. Yeah. How, how does this unveil God's plan to fulfill the creation mandate? Right. Uh, now, the way you put it there is, uh, is a really helpful way of putting it. Um, just to pick up on some of the terminology you used, um, the rest of history after Genesis 1, that history which is narrated in the Bible, is the process by which this plan is unveiled. And so what, what we do is, having read Genesis 1, we then start reading Genesis 2, 3, 4, and so on, and trying to see, okay, how's God going to accomplish this, this plan to have his people fill the earth and subdue it and so on. Now, of course, we've already mentioned in chapter 3, we run into this problem of sin, a problem which God is going to overcome in time, but when we get to chapter 12, we find something quite interesting and important, which is where God replaces Adam. Actually, not quite for the first time. He's already replaced Adam with Noah. The account of Noah is like a new creation account, the world coming up out of water again for a second time. But with Abraham, it's as if God um, uh, says to him, you're going to do the thing which Adam failed to do. And if you read Genesis 12, for example... Um, uh, God says, I will bless those who bless you. Notice the, he's picking up the language from Genesis 1, the language of blessing, um, uh, which God used to describe what Adam's going to do. So, um, in uh, Genesis 12, you're thinking, all right, Abraham is going to be like a new Adam, a new base from which the people of God grow to fill the earth. And so God, Abraham has promised many children which is what you'd expect, because he's going to have to have many descendants if they're going to fill the earth. Mm. Now then, um, in Genesis 12, 
the focus is on the families of the earth. And the, the term is uh, mishpachot, a uh, Hebrew term which means clans or families. And so if you just read Genesis 12, you'd think, okay, so Abraham is going to have lots and lots of children and they're going to, uh, grandchildren and so on, and his descendants are going to fill the earth and worship the Lord and so on and so forth. However, by the time you get to Genesis 22, this is after the testing uh, with the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, just to, to recap, you, you recall, your listeners will recall that um, God tested Abraham by commanding him to offer his son as a sacrifice. Um, now, his son is the one through whom God is going to build this great nation of people, so clearly Abraham must have believed in the resurrection of the dead or something like it, which is what Paul later says. Um, but after the testing is successful, um, the uh, angel of the Lord says, Now, uh, by myself I've sworn, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and so on, as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's an image of conquest and so on. Um, and in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Mm. Now notice two things. Firstly, again, it's picking up the language from Genesis 1 and now from Genesis 12. A blessing to, the, to uh, other peoples and uh, conquest now. There's an, there's an enemy that needs to be conquered, the devil from chapter 3. Well, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. The gate is a place of judgment and civil, civil rule in the Old Testament. Um, and the offspring will be multiplied. But the, the name tribe or family, Mishpachot, has changed to Goyim, nations. Mm. And it's as if what God is doing is showing in Abraham's life how the plan is going to be developing. And we'll see this later as we, we talk through later passages in the Bible. God fills out the details of the plan. So what this means, it seems to me, is that uh, as history progresses, we would expect not just individuals and individual families to order their lives according to the teaching of the Lord and his Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, we would expect entire nations to do so. And in fact, there might come a day when there is a nation in the ancient Near East um, who has a king who builds a great temple for the Lord um, and to whom other nations, the Queen of Sheba, for example, comes because she wants to find out about the living God whom this nation worships. And that nation, as a nation, starts to order its life in accordance with the teaching of uh, the Word of God. Now, this theme is then picked up not just in the Old Testament, but in the New. And at the risk of skating on a few chapters of the Bible too fast, um, we could uh, just take, for example, the Great Commission in uh, Matthew 28. What does the Great Commission command? Okay, you know, we all, it's one of those texts of the Bible where we all think we know what it says. Um, and then you look again and think, grief, is that really what it says? Uh, the way we translate it, is often like this. Go therefore, Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right. Etc. Now, that's actually not what the text says. What the text says is, go therefore and disciple the nations. Mm. There are three different ways in Greek of saying, go and disciple people from the nations. You could use one of three prepositions, en, ek, or apo. This uses none of them. It's just a straight accusative. It says, disciple the nations. So if Jesus' command is to be fulfilled, there must be nations which one day get on the phone to the pastors of their... Well, the government will get on the phone to the pastor of the church down the road and will say, listen, 80% of our population wants to be governed according to the teaching of Scripture. 
and we're not quite sure what to do. Um, would you please come down here and give us a helping hand with this because uh, we want to the, this nation to be discipled. We want this nation to follow the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, what it, that's how we'd expect it to play out in history. Now, do you realise that that's actually what happened in England a few hundred years ago? <laughs> yeah. right? um, John Owen, your listeners and you, I'm sure, will have heard of John Owen, um, probably England's greatest theologian. He says something about us that he should have lived so long ago, but probably England's greatest theologian. Um, uh, one of the volumes of his collected works is entitled Sermons to the Nation. Mm. And what happened, he was at that time, I think, Chancellor of Oxford University or Vice-Chancellor of Oxford University. And the, uh, the newly constituted parliament literally wrote to him and said, please would you come and up to London and um, tell us how to do our job. <laughs> and he preached before parliament explaining, uh, these sermons have titles like The Duties of Magistrates. <laughs> and there's, there's wonderful sections in which... Um, in which he's explaining to the civil government that the gospel of Christ has a right to be preached in every nation under heaven. You just think about that. Um, so what's happened there is that God's purposes have developed to the point where this nation was trying to order its affairs in accordance with the rule of Christ. Now, we failed. Christendom collapsed. But the failure of that Christendom doesn't mean that it'll never happen again, or that it was a bad idea, or that it was out of keeping with the Word of God. We'll talk later about how history sure. will develop. Um, it goes in ups and downs, and fits and starts, and backwards and forwards, and this is just the way that God works. But what happened in Britain in that Puritan period, the post-Reformation period, is what Jesus was talking about. Jesus said, disciple the nations. The parliament of the time of John Owen tried to disciple Britain, and for various reasons they failed, but it will happen again post-millennialists believe. Sure. Well, and, and I'm sure many would, would say that something similar happened with the country that I'm, you know, that I live in, right. uh, and, and also to a large extent has, has uh, failed today as well in our country. Right. But, yes. uh, but, but let me throw just a little bit of a wrench in your argument briefly to see what you think. <laughs> uh, presumably that word nations, uh, you know, in, in the original Hebrew would have been would have been goyim. Uh, yeah. Obviously, what we have recorded is not Hebrew; it's Greek. But uh, you know, when when uh, when Jewish people refer to the goyim, they can even they could either be referring to nations or they could be referring to Gentiles. And yeah, so the sure. question I would have for you, and, and obviously this is a little bit off the cuff, you know, this isn't a question mm. I had planned to ask, but it occurred yeah, to me as you fine. as you read the text, is that why, why couldn't he be saying essentially disciple the Gentiles? Why must he be saying uh, disciple right. the nations? Right. You're right, Goyim can mean sometimes Gentiles as distinct from Israel, or it can mean nations as a kind of larger entity than the clan. Right. The, the good issue is context will decide. Now, at this point, Israel as a nation didn't exist. So because there was no Israel, there's no Gentiles, so to speak, to contrast them with. Oh, wait, wait, hold saying? on a second. In, so, you're you're that, saying that, that. <laughs> at the time the Great Commission was given, there was oh, no... Oh, no, no, sorry, sorry, I'm, I'm saying, I thought you were talking about Genesis 22. No, 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 I apologize. <laughs> I'm, talking, I'm talking about the Great Commission. Oh, the Great Commission. Forgive me, I, I, I might have misheard. Uh, so, uh, okay. So the whole question again, uh, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Um, and you're saying... 
could well, I'm Jesus asking, be talking about? You know, about? you made, you yeah. made a point which is which is which is a good one that, that I'd never considered before, which is that the text says, "Disciple mm. the nations, not go and make disciples of nations." But the question okay. I have is, if 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 the if the background, uh, if the lexical background to Jesus' language there uh, is one in which a word that means nations could I mm. could also mean Gentiles. Right. Why is it, why right. is it not possible that what he's saying is disciple the Gentiles? Yeah. I'm, I'm just okay. curious. No, no, it's, it's a good question. Well, I guess there are two things to say to that. Um, uh, the first would be, um, although ethne, uh, nations in Matthew 28, um, can sometimes be used rather than of national entities, just of non-Jews, mm. um, there are other words that you could use too, which would make the point uh, less ambiguous if you sure. wanted to do so. Um, and Paul picks a few of them in Romans, for example, when he talks about the Greeks as distinct from the Jews. So if, if, if he wanted to say, look, go make sure you disciple um, non-Jews as well as Jews, then there will, there will be a clearer way of saying it. Um, the, the second thing, I guess, to say will be that uh, this doctrine doesn't hang on one text. Um, sure, if, you know, so this for, because it forms part of a trajectory, and particularly the development in Genesis 22, the later development in Israel's history, and then how that's played out. You know, it, it's interesting that it's the Queen of Sheba who comes. And later we'll look at, at some Psalms and so on, which make the same kind of um, prediction. Isaiah 2, Micah 4, again, it's, it's nations, in, because it's kings and queens, or many kings actually, coming as representatives of the nations. Um, so, in, in short, although of course it's true that individual non-Israelites are welcome in Old and New Testament in the Kingdom of God, I think this is saying more, and it, within the flow of the development of biblical history and the teaching of the Bible, I think that becomes clear. I see. Well, and, and as you say, this isn't uh, your, your position doesn't hang on this one verse alone. And, and no, this no, argument sure. that we've been talking about that you laid out in the papers you sent me has a third plank to it, which is that mm -hmm. whereas Israel had failed through disobedience to fulfill this purpose, Christ succeeded, and his kingdom is being established now, uh, having yeah, inherited right. all the privileges pointed to by the Abrahamic covenant. Can you tell us how this fits in with this building case for postmillennialism? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, one helpful way, I mean, again, this is probably a... <laughs> possibly a contentious question way of putting it um, I would, reformed covenantal theologians let's say would say that a helpful way of, of synthesizing the teaching of scripture is to see its development through successive covenantal eras and we're in the era of the, the so-called new covenant to pick up the language of Jeremiah 31 now the new covenant era uh, with every new covenant comes a new kingdom just ask David um, <laughs> and so what Jesus comes to do, therefore, is to proclaim the kingdom. His preaching of the kingdom is precisely the inauguration of the new covenant era. And, of course, he makes the same kinds of statements towards his crowning on the cross and the, the new covenant meal, the Lord's Supper, when he has the last supper with his disciples, and so on. Now, um, so what the way that this, this pulls together is that the new covenant era is the time during which the kingdom of Christ is being preached, which is crucially the time in which all the expectations from previous covenantal eras will be fulfilled. The promises to Abraham and the promises to David and so on will be fulfilled in Christ. All the scriptures find their yes and amen in him. Everything terminates on him and focuses upon him. And what's interesting is when you look at individual texts of scripture from the Gospels or the New Testament epistles and so on, you see this all the time. So in Luke chapter 1, you've got uh, several allusions to the uh, Abrahamic covenant um, with uh, the um, 
the Zechari Zechariah's song and Mary's song and so on. Um, it, you don't have to look very hard at all to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic king that the Psalms speak of. Mm. Um, and so w what that means is if you, you've got to imagine all these promises of God from the Old Testament era building up and it's like a, tr a freight train going along and picking up stuff in front of it on the, on the tracks and then it, it all crashes headlong into the New Testament era through the resurrection of Christ. And all those promises therefore uh, land upon us in Christ that he is the fulfilment of all the expectations that have been raised before. Okay, so then you would say that the, the promises, uh, for example, that, that through Abraham uh, all the nations as nations would be blessed is something that's inherited through Christ, so that in Christ you would say all that's nations as nations will eventually be blessed. Is that kind of... That's, that's the kind of thing. So, so what you'd anticipate is that the church would grow as individual people and families come to Christ. Um, then as the church grows, um, you, get, you get to a point where the church starts to have political significance. Not because the church is doing political campaigning. Uh, this is not about a political program for transformation. It's very important to get that clear. We're talking about evangelism and church mm. growth. Forget, forget politics. Forget politics completely. You're doing politics when you do evangelism because you're declaring the rule of the king. That counts as politics. And so what happens, by the time the, the, the evangelical Christian population gets to 10 or 15%, it can no longer be ignored. By the time it gets to 40%, it can no longer lose. And what, if the, the gospel is true, and Jesus is Lord, and if these promises are promises which he is fulfilling, then the church will just grow to the point where it's, the Christian community starts to be determinative for the political life of the nation. And you've remarked on this before in the US, and again in, in Britain in former centuries, that was true. Um, John Owen wasn't called to Parliament to impose um, a kind of Christian martial law against the will of the electorate. He was called there because the politicians represented the people and the people wanted Christian government. Mm. Um, and post-millennialists believe that day will come again, probably several more times before we get it close to being right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this isn't a recipe for an easy ride. But um, uh, as people come to Christ, the nations that they are part of will become more Christian. I see. Okay. Now, I want to mention uh, an objection uh, to this view, and I want to cover that in a second. But, but first, if you don't mind me sharing this, uh, you and I are both what are called preterists, orthodox preterists, that is, what are sometimes called partial preterists, although I think that's an unfortunate phrase. How does a debate between preterism and futurism relate to the debate between these three views of the millennium? Okay, that's a good question. So um, here's how it works. Um, if, if I say to somebody, especially... Um, somebody in, in the UK, where post-millennialism is a minority view among evangelicals. If I say, um, Jesus won't be coming back right now, Jesus won't be coming back until the church has grown and the, the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, um, the reply I'm likely to get is, hold on, Jesus said he's coming soon. Right, yeah. <laughs> so what, how, how can you believe that the kingdom is going to keep growing before Jesus comes back, if Jesus can be coming soon, or if his return is to be regarded as imminent? Mm. That's a good question, because there are lots of biblical texts that say Jesus is coming soon. Right. Uh, <laughs> Revelation 22.20, for example, I'm coming soon. Um, uh, now, this relates to the view you call uh, partial preterism, because uh, well, one way of putting it is like this, Jesus did come soon. 
Mm. He came soon, about 40 years after he said he was coming soon. That's um, right. The coming that he was referring to, in other words, in those texts, was not his final coming on Resurrection Day, uh, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, but the coming upon apostate Jerusalem and Israel in AD 70, when he came to judge the city of Jerusalem and its temple, which had turned away from him. So Jesus was coming soon, um, and he came, and now we're waiting for his long-distant future coming, the final coming. Um, so uh, if, in a sense, what we've just got to do is got to go back and examine those texts, and um, if you were convinced that those texts, the coming soon texts, were definitely referring to the second coming of Christ, the final coming of Christ, then that would be an argument against post-millennialism. Mm. The trouble is, I don't think any of them are. Um, and, I mean, just to push the argument further, um, suppose you thought they were. I mean, I, I can imagine some of my friends who are amils and not preterists on those texts saying, look, we're pretty sure. I say, well, hold on, when did Jesus speak those words? Um, maybe he spoke them in AD 29, or Paul was writing in AD 56 about the imminent coming of Jesus. Well, Jesus hasn't come yet, 2,000 years. That's not soon. Right. In other words, people who aren't preterists can't make the texts mean what they say. I think the text means soon. <laughs> and Jesus came soon. 40 years is pretty soon. That's within a generation, as Jesus says elsewhere in Mark 13, sure. for example. So, so in summary, then, the, the so-called coming soon texts are not an argument against a long wait for Jesus' uh, final return and the general resurrection, because Jesus has already come. Um, those texts are talking about his coming in AD 70. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you, and, and obviously we're not going to turn this into a defense of uh, preterism, but, but the point is just that, you know, uh, as an objection to post-millennialism, that this, this issue of Christ coming soon uh, doesn't yeah. work if, if the post-millennialist believes that Christ did come in a sense in that first century and that we're right now in this thousand-year period of time that, uh, that John has shown in the vision. So, yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, and yeah, just, no, just, just, just to add to that, I mean, you picked up on the phrase partial preterist, and I can, I can understand why some people, uh, um, perhaps yourself included, find that terminology unfortunate. But let's just be clear that um, we believe that there are numerous texts which do refer to Jesus coming in glory to judge the living of the dead. That's right. Corinthians 15, for example. Um, so it's not that that coming isn't going to happen. It's more of an issue of, let's look case by case at all of the future-oriented texts in the New Testament do they refer to events which are now in the past or which are still in the future? And it's just a text-by-text, case-by-case, long, hard work of exegesis. That's, that's the bottom line. And um, one of the things that, that I mean, I, I hope your listeners will do this, if, they, if there is anybody who thinks, you know, this, this um, post-millennial thing sounds like there might be something in it, and there are, there's a precedent for it, certainly a huge precedent in the Reformed tradition. One of the things, guys, you've got to do is to go back and look at these texts because you must be clear in your own mind about what the Bible teaches. Don't just take on board an idea that's new because it sounds cool. <laughs> and B.B. Warfield believed it, you know. Um, and so it, it, all of us need to be driven back to the Bible to figure out what we think about this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would just also like to point out that the, the belief in the future return of Christ, I, I think, is uh, of far more significance and far more importance exactly. than even this debate between postmillennialism and, and 
premillennialism and so forth. And so right. I don't want anybody to get the impression that uh, you know that, that the two are of equal importance. Right. Uh, but, but nevertheless, we are. You and I are convinced by exegesis of the text that uh, that Christ did come in that sense. And so uh, I think you and I would probably be willing to say that there's a, a degree to which or a sense in which uh, Christ could return soon, but that that's not what those texts were saying oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. in terms of his second advent is the way I like to say it. They were talking yeah. about his coming to judge Jerusalem, which, right. which he did. See, now, right, yeah. so, so what is this all, let's put this all together. What does this all mean? Hmm. Does, it, does it mean that the kingdom of Christ will see smooth and steady progress, kind of like a line graph or something going up, leading up to today and until his return? Does it mean that there will come a time when everybody is saved? What is the conclusion of this argument that you've been building? Yeah, okay, so um, a friend of mine, um, Douglas Wilson, who's a, a minister up in uh, Moscow, Idaho, has I've come up with the best illustration I can think of for this. The, the, the way that the kingdom of Christ grows is a little bit like mountain biking uphill. Hmm. If, you mount, if you ride a mountain bike up a mountain, there are ups and downs. You know, um, if, if you just zoomed in and looked at a 10-meter stretch, you might conclude you were going downhill pretty fast. But if you zoom out and look at the big picture, what you see is a basic trend uphill mm. with loads and loads of ups and downs built in. And in fact, the way that you get to the next bit that goes up is by going downhill. Mm. Um, and that's exactly what happens in history. So uh, the growth of the kingdom of Christ, and this is pretty much undisputable historically for the last 2,000 years, the, um, the growth of the kingdom of Christ has been steadily long-term uh, uphill with many, many, many periods of uh, backsliding, apostasy, uh, churches turning from the Lord and Christians being persecuted and being executed or churches diminishing and uh, parents being Christians but children not being Christians and those kinds of things. So it's up and down, up and down, up and down, or rather down and up. It's death and resurrection. <laughs> the, the whole shape of the Christian life is death and resurrection in your life, in the life of a church, in the life of a nation. Um, so China, let's take an example. So the, China is, uh, nobody knows how many tens of millions of Christians there are in China. Mm. Hundreds of millions, quite possibly, in, in secret underground house churches. But one thing is for certain, that when the communist government falls, those Christians who have been trained in suffering will be set free in a new way to preach the gospel, and then we will discover how many Christians there are. Like in Cuba, the, the estimates vary from sort of 20% to 60% how many Christians there are in Cuba. I'm talking evangelical Christians. But, of course, they're, because they're persecuted by the state, they, um, they're uh, undercover. But Cuba is crumbling. Cuba is crumbling, and in 100 years, the communist government will be gone, and Fidel Castro will be dead, but Jesus will still be alive, and the church will still be growing. So at the moment, they're going through a period of pain and suffering, being refined and strengthened, ready to explode into life, and someday they'll be sending missionaries to your country and mine, Chris, because that's just what happens to, you know, um, the, I think there is now a net flux of missionaries coming to Britain from Africa. <laughs> Isn't that mm. ridiculous? You know? I mean, that's, that's not, it sounds ridiculous, but it's just what you'd expect. So things go up and down, but on the big scale, things are going up. Um, I mean, I, just to illustrate that, um, a friend of mine, one of my fellow elders here at Emmanuel, David Field, uh, gave a lecture, in, which was subsequently published. And one of the things he talked about was the growth of the church. And so I, the statistics are so memorable that it, they stick with me. Um, in the first 1,400 years after the resurrection of Christ, the church grew to 1% of the world's population. Mm. In the next 360 years, it doubled to 2%. 
it took 170 years more to double again to 4%, and that takes us to 1960. Within 30 years, the number of Christians had doubled again to 8% in 1990. And by 2007, just 17 years after that, one-third of the world's population claimed Jesus as Lord, and 11% of the world's population are Bible-believing evangelical Christians. The church is growing twice as fast as Islam and two third, uh, three times faster than the world's population. And South America is turning Protestant faster than Europe did during the Reformation. Mm. All right, so this, we're going uphill. But we're going uphill in the way that Jesus did, death and resurrection. So Christians the world over are suffering like they've never suffered before. But you can't kill the church because you can't kill Jesus. Yeah. I understand. Now, now, some do object, though, to, to this view. I mean, I, the way that you just laid that out is very compelling. I had never considered those statistics before. Uh, but, but some object to this view based on hmm. uh, their belief that the biblical expectation is that Christians sure. will suffer until Christ returns. And yet, if, if what you've laid out is the vision, the biblical vision of the future is, it unfolds the way that you say it does, then yeah, Christians yeah. will suffer less and less, it would seem. How, how do you respond right. to this kind of objection? Um, I mean, I think this is the best objection. <laughs> um, as, as objections go, it's pretty good. And so um, it needs answering. So let, let's just deal with it a bit at a time. Okay, um, suffering. Nobody is saying that suffering is going to stop. Um, suffering doesn't stop just because you're not surrounded by uh, hostile unbelievers. Christians will continue to suffer the pain of indwelling sin and the frustration of death and bereavement and the sadness of... Uh, there will always be people who aren't converted. And uh, that all those things will be intensified with a mature and godly church. Um, I mean, can, just think of, think of your church now, and your listeners, think of your church. Um, who are the people in your church who suffer most because of their own sin? It's the godliest Christians, isn't it? Mm. Uh, the Christians who couldn't care less and are kind of uh, immature Christians and are backsliding, they, they're not suffering torment inside because of their sin they can care less when the church has grown and is more mature and the christians therein are more godly the actual suffering because of their personal indwelling sin will be intensified so for a start nobody is saying that suffering is over death will remain um, sin will remain unbelievers will remain and all those things will be painful to behold and painful to experience um, there's a second strand to the argument which is I think where the argument gets more compelling even than that. Um, and it's the argument that, according to Scripture, um, not just suffering, but persecution... Right, that's what I was about to ask. ...will remain. Right, yeah. And so you th think of somewhere like Romans 8. Um, you know, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. You know, persecution and sword, they're wielded by other people. And... This seems to suggest that uh, persecution will endure until Jesus returns. Because in Romans 8, the expectation is very definitely the resurrection of the dead. We're, we're waiting the resurrection of our bodies. That's the expectation there. We don't adopt a preterist reading of Romans 8, at least I don't. <laughs> now, um, so what's going on here? Well, again, let's just think it through. Always there are going to be some unbelievers. Always there will be Christians who are suffering persecution uh, in one form or another, from uh, the unbelieving community around them. Um, 
none of us believes that actually every Romans 8 teaches that every Christian must experience persecution with the sword I mean we don't want to nobody would press the point that everyone that every Christian must experience you know execution um, sure. or the text is wrong all, all we're saying is that somewhere somebody in the world a member of the body of Christ will be experiencing this and that is true whether you're A-mill, post-mill, pre-mill, whatever you are. I certainly believe that there will be Christians persecuted by their non-Christian contemporaries right up to the moment when Jesus returns. In fact, just think about how it would work. What's gonna, what are the non-believers going to do? Suppose, imagine a world in which you've got 98% Christians. Well, the non-Christians are going to go and hide out somewhere and, and try and create a little community for themselves where they're not... Uh, subjected to all this evangelism the whole time. Now, what would you do if you knew the island on which the unbelievers lived? Well, somebody <laughs> would go there, right? <laughs> That's what I would say, yeah. Right, so some, somebody's going to go. And that person, very likely, is going to suffer the kind of fate that Jim Elliot did. You know, he'll be put to death by the people he went out to evangelise. Um, now, maybe one or two of them will be converted, but, um, and that'd be wonderful, and um, we'd, be, we'd all be praying for them. Um, few of us would have the courage to go precisely because those people would experience persecution right up to the day when Jesus returned. Yeah, I think that's fair. I do want to say, though, that I think uh, I think that it's going to take some time for for myself and listeners to really uh, think through that response to the objection. Because, sure, I mean, to be, sure. to be fair, while, while I think that what you said makes some amount of sense, to, at the same time... It, just thinking of the case where you've got 98% of the world converted, where you've got nations that are that are uh, yeah. Christian nations in, in the truest sense of that phrase, uh, to, to the idea that that would still be a place where one might expect persecution, even in these little pockets, uh, th that might be a little hard to swallow for some listeners. Yeah. Uh, but, but at the same time, I, I do think that you know everything that you said logically makes sense. It is true, I think, that uh, there would be these little holdouts where where uh, if a Christian were good to go to evangelize them, they're going to experience persecution. Although, uh, I suppose I suppose the, the the reason why that might not be easy to swallow is because even then, um, what is going to be the response mm -hmm. by the Christian nation to these yeah. little holdouts if such persecution were to take place? I can't imagine that that would go un. Uh, unaddressed by the Christian nation around them. No, I'm, I'm sure it wouldn't. But um, again, it's it's quite possible to imagine, you know, a, a country, let's say, a country that manages to to cut itself off um, politically from the rest of the world, where it, it just just as now um, countries become and regions of countries and regions of cities become magnets for people of, with the same kind of outlook on life. I, sure. I used to joke about it. Where I, where the first church I worked at in, in Wim, near Wimbledon in South London, um, every second person was uh, South African and the, the remainder half were Australian. You know, <laughs> um, because that's where lots of uh, folks from those nationalities went. They shared so much in common and they therefore grouped together. Now, the same sort of things happen with people of strong religious convictions, whether they're strong believers or strong atheists. Sure. Um, during the um, period of the founding of the United States, uh, loads and loads of committed Christians sailed across the Atlantic because they wanted to be together in a place where they could practice their faith. I think it's, it's a human instinct of people to gather together. And I would expect that as history progresses, you would get one or two countries, say, or five or ten, becoming more secular and more pagan and therefore being more attractive to unbelief and perhaps to other religions, religions like Islam and so on, if it's not disappeared by then. So um, 
Now, if, if you go, if a missionary goes to another country, then he or she is subject to the laws of that country. Um, just now, if a missionary goes to Eritrea, and suppose they try and help a, a Christian refugee, they're likely to be jailed, and the, the refugee is likely to be in worse trouble. Um, and there's nothing that the British consulate can do to help you, because you're in another country. I see. So, um, so, so, so the, the, go ahead. Sorry. No, it's okay. So, um, but so what you're saying then, and I just want to make sure I understand, is that hmm. you're saying that it is conceivable that not every single Christian, every single nation, there, there might be. Uh, when you when you talk about these holdouts, these these pockets of yes, holdouts yes, of, yes. Of, of unbelief, they could in fact be small nations. I would, have, I would have said so. Yeah, I would have said so. I mean, in one sense, uh, a nation can, to a certain extent, constitute itself mm. if there are sufficient people there. Um, uh, it, it might be hard to imagine in a time when the world is so um, widely populated, but there are large regions of empty space, <laughs> even even today. So yes, uh, I, there's nothing in uh, post-millennial theology that would stop the existence of non-Christian nations. There would just uh, be few of them by the time... There would just be few of them. And, and, and to, for missionaries to go there, expect a hard time. Okay. Well, there you go, part one of my interview with Steve Jeffrey on post-millennialism. Uh, in a few days, I'll publish part two so you can hear the rest. It was something I really enjoyed and found interesting. So I hope you'll come back to listen to that. Until then...